I don't know if anybody has watched a game of football in the last 18 months or so, um, but if you have, you'll be aware of the big sort of campaign that's currently taking place to kick racism and discrimination out of football. Um, I think the various different governing bodies um, have got their own little tagline that they like to use. Um, so there's the kick it out one, which I think the Premier League use. Uh, there's the no room for racism. Um, and there's the one that the BBC use, which is entitled Hate Won't Win. Um, and when I was watching Match of the Day the other week, it kind of comes up at the end of the credit sequence. And it, it kind of got me thinking a little bit. Um, I thought, you know, hmm, hate, hate won't win. That's, it's quite a bold claim to make, isn't it? Um, and I kind of thought, you know, although I completely agree with the sentiment behind that idea, I'm kind of sceptical of it to a certain degree. Um, in my cynicism, I kind of think, you know, well, well, from where I'm sitting, it doesn't look like hate has taken much of a dent from, from this campaign, if I'm honest. And I kind of think from a Christian perspective, to eliminate racial hatred from football or any other walk of life, first of all, you've got to eradicate sin and sinfulness. Um, and sinners aren't going anywhere either, unfortunately, this side of glory. Um, and whatever the world's spinning on its axis, you know, we're always going to have sinfulness there with us. I don't know how long the anti-racism, anti anti-hate campaign has been running, but you only have to look at the horrible abuse that were taken by Saka, Rashford and Sancho after the, the end of the Euros to know that the campaign's not really worked, has it? Um, at least not as much as it should have done. Um, hatred evidentially isn't going away anytime soon. However, then I came to read 1 John chapter 2, which Dave just read for us, and I must admit, I felt a little bit scolded when I read it for taking that kind of opinion. Um, although there's some truth to what I've just said, John has some pretty clear words to say to me about making allowances for hatred in this world. If you read verse 11, anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness. It's a pretty clear warning, isn't it? So on that basis, I am going to unashamedly steal the tagline for the BBC's anti-racism campaign and use it for this talk, but with one crucial difference, um, which probably won't come as much of a surprise to anyone which is that from a biblical perspective, hatred will ultimately lose, but not through a PR campaign, not through raising awareness, not through harsh punishments or re-education, as it were, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications that it has for us. So we're going to get to that bit a little bit later, um, but just as a bit of an outline for, for where we're going, um, I've just got three sort of short headings um, as we look through this text. Number one, obedience through knowledge. Number two, a new commandment through the example of Christ. And number three, as I've said, the curse of hatred. So let's start at the beginning. Point number one, obedience through knowledge. I'm going to go from verse three. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. And I just want to consider for a second the word obedience. Verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. Now, I don't know if you kind of played a game of word association. What are some of the words that you'd think of that would go along with the word obedience? 
I would hazard a guess that some of the adjectives that you might come up with probably wouldn't be all that positive. Um, so I was thinking up words like restrictive, uh, limiting, dull, controlling. You know, these are some of the words that we put alongside obedience. Particularly now in the 21st century, the idea of restricting someone's personal liberty through obedience is just an absolute cardinal sin. It's anathema to us in this day and age. And even more so when it comes to obedience to a creed or a belief system that dictates upon our personal freedom. You know, it's considered fundamentally unintelligent, isn't it? But this passage clearly tells us that obedience to God is born out of something very, very important, and that is knowledge, specifically knowledge of God. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands, and if you say you know him and don't do what he commands, you are a liar. So knowledge and obedience, they go hand in hand. Now, I don't really have time today to go into this sort of specific ins and outs of, of how the word knowledge is used in the Bible, but I think it's just kind of looking at it in a tiny little bit of detail just as we look at these, these few verses. By the way, I don't, I don't know ancient Greek, so please feel free to not ask me about this later if you have any questions. Um, well, some very good authors have informed me that in ancient Greek there's various ways the word knowledge gets thrown around. Um, various sort of connotations that it evokes, if you like. So there's a word for the type of knowledge that you would get through just learning facts about things. You know, um, I know that that wall's made of plasterboard. You know, I know that if I use my wife's favourite mug in the morning, she's going to yell at me. Um, which, and I still do it. So clearly, that's not the type of knowledge we're looking for. Um, and then there's also a type of knowledge that refers to a kind of recognition of something. So you might be talking to a mate and they might say to you, oh, do you know so-and-so? And you go, oh, yeah, I know him, yeah, or her. Even though you might not know him particularly well, but it's just a kind of sort of recognition of sort of general familiarity, really. But crucially, there's a third type of knowledge that gets referred to in this text in relationship to obedience. Um, a guy called Colin Cruz wrote a commentary on 1 John, which Ash very kindly lent me. And I think he says something really helpful here, so I'm just going to quote him briefly. It says, knowing God is not simply being able to recognize him operating in circumstances or in other people. It is knowing him personally for oneself. Because in 1 John, knowing God involves fellowship with him and being in him. So it encapsulates a certain level of intimacy. There's a oneness to it. An idea that you share the same orientation as the person that you share knowledge with. Now, you see this type of knowledge sort of dotted around the Bible, uh, Bible in, in various contexts. Um, I need to tread a bit carefully with this next illustration. But sometimes in the Bible, to know someone even translates to a level of sexual intimacy. So if you read Genesis 4 verse 1, in some translations you'll read, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, we don't want to run away with this analogy too much, but there's no doubt that knowledge is sometimes used in the Bible to describe the physical intimacy that comes between man and wife. And in some ways, that's meant to be a reflection of the spiritual knowledge and intimacy that we experience with God. Skipping forward a little bit to verse 5. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. Just look at that verse just 
briefly and just look at how it's worded. It's love for God that is being completed by the obedience. It's kind of presumed that the love for God, which comes through the knowledge that we've been talking about, is already there, and the obedience comes along to complete it. Or to put it another way, that the obedience is the evidence of the love, if you like. might be helpful to think of it like a chain. You know, We start out with knowledge of God, which leads to love for God, and culminates with obedience, which provides the proof of what's gone before. I'm sure some of us have heard the phrase blind obedience before, you know, which kind of implies that we give ourselves over to something that's sort of ambiguous, with no obvious benefit to ourselves. But we have to consider that when God asks for our obedience, it's because he made the first move to rescue us through the gospel. This is the knowledge that's ultimately foundational to our obedience. It's the fact that Christ first demonstrated perfect obedience to his Father on our behalf to live the life that we couldn't and to die the death that we couldn't to bring us salvation. It's this Christ that asks you to obey him. Another negative connotation when we think of obedience is that it kind of benefits the person that's demanding it and it takes away from the person that's giving it. But God doesn't benefit from our obedience at all in a material sense. Our obedience doesn't add anything to God that he couldn't already get on his own. But through being obedient, we can gain spiritual fulfillment through our relationship with him. And that is the operative word when I want us to think about these few verses. It's relationship. Um, So yeah, that's point number one. Uh, So moving on a little bit to number two. A new commandment through the example of Christ. So I'm going to go from verse six. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. This truth is seen in him and in you, because darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So we've got the reason for our obedience, we've looked at that. And now we move on to what that obedience actually looks like in practice. And we get that pretty clearly in verse 6 whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did or walk as he walked in some translation so how can we sum up living as Jesus did so ask the man himself Matthew 22 verse 37 someone comes to Jesus and says what's the greatest commandment or to put it another way what's the ultimate act of obedience Jesus replied as I'm sure is familiar to most of you love the Lord your God with all your heart soul and mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments everything jesus did every waking second he spent on this earth was in pursuit of these two things love for god and love for human beings and we see that reflected a little bit in our text now verse six which we've already looked at Love for God needs to be perfected in us. That's vertical love, if you like. And then it gets extended and fleshed out a bit in verse 10. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. It goes horizontal to other human beings. It's obviously a lot more nuanced than that when you break it down. But at the heart of it, walking as Jesus walked comes from these two things. And then sandwiched in between that, in verses 7 and 8... We've got these slightly odd couple of verses. 
Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you've had since the beginning. This old command you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. His truth is seen in him and him in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is shining. So is it old or is it new? It's a bit confusing. Um, so John here is basically quoting himself, quoting Jesus from his gospel. Um, the famous words which, which Jesus uttered at the Last Supper from John 13 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. So how then is it an old commandment? Well, I've just quoted Jesus from Matthew 22, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But that verse actually first appears in all the way back in Leviticus 19. So in that sense, it's really old. But it's new, John says, because the true light is already shining in verse 8. The light of Jesus Christ and the light of the gospel, that is why it's new. Understanding the gospel completely revolutionizes the concept of loving your neighbor. And it gives it new meaning. Jesus, through one act of dying on the cross, gives us both the means through which we can love our neighbors, but he also gives us the example of how we're to do that. Through the cross, Jesus showed us that his love was complete, sacrificial, selfless, humble. It did not hold anything back. It's, it's a kind of love. It's not just a general affection for someone. It's not just liking somebody. If we're to walk as he walked, this is what it means in its deepest form. And that's why it's a new command. Because Jesus himself gives it a new meaning. And then finally, point number three, the curse of hatred, coming back a little bit to where we started. I'll read from verse nine. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Um, just as a very quick aside, John refers specifically here to hatred for brothers and sisters in that verse. He's, he's writing into a church context, he's writing to Christians. Um, but that's definitely not to say that this idea doesn't extend to everybody. You know, you only have to cast your eye over other parts of the Bible. Most obviously, Jesus says, love your enemies, for instance, which is one very clear example. So don't just limit this to a church context when we're looking at it. This is complete. I don't know about you at this point, but I mean, as I was going through it, I felt pretty deflated, to be honest. <laughs> Um, I think I said to Holly on Thursday or something, I feel like a bit of a fraud stood up here preaching the virtues of Christ-like love and obedience when, to be honest, I'm a bit of a miserable git at times. I'm going to be <laughs> totally honest. Um, I'm, even, I'm, work, I'm working on this talk this week, right? I wander down the petrol station to get a coffee and this woman gets in my face, right, trying to sell me energy deals. I politely decline. She was having none of it. She's trying to send me away with flyers, She's starting to ask me all these invasive questions. And as she's talking, I'm, I'm going to be totally honest, the hate started bubbling up inside me. Some of it, a little bit of it might have popped out. <laughs> but that's not unique to me, is it? You know, All of us as human beings, we have showed hate towards people at some point in our lives. Some of you might disagree with me. Some of you might say, you know, I don't really hate anyone. I'm pretty easygoing. Maybe this talk isn't for me. 
Well, the first thing I'd do if you say that is I'd submit you to the, the Paul Washer test, um, which is, is, he's just an American preacher, but a famous thing that he said was, was that if I could pull out everything you've ever thought, not anything you've ever said or done, just your thoughts, I could stick them on that screen there and play them to everybody through your entire life, how would you react? Maybe you'd have cause to reconsider that opinion. You know, interestingly, that verse I quoted from Leviticus, just two verses before God admonishes the people of Israel not to hate your brother or sister in your heart. So it's not just, we're not just talking about tangible hatred here. It's what's in here. You know, Jesus says, out of the heart speaks the mouth, right? And equally, if this isn't something you're struggling with now, it's something we still need to guard against because it can come out of nowhere, can't it? A few weeks ago, I saw George, George Floyd's parents talking on the news. I'm pretty sure that they probably thought of themselves as pretty easygoing people until someone came and took their son away. Now, I don't know them, but I would be very surprised if over the last year or so they've not had to battle against some pretty intense hatred. So we need to be on our guard when we look at this text. I think it's probably also important to clarify at this point that you know, there's a difference between hate and anger, right? I'm not saying that Christ-like love looks you know, like one of those weird American televangelists where you've got you know, the kind of veneered smile all the time and everything's lovely and I love everybody and everything's great and I never have any negative thoughts. That's not what we're saying. Jonathan, Joel Osteen, that's what I'm describing. <laughs> You know, I look at it you know, think, come on, mate, you're kidding yourself. You don't live in the real world. Or, or the guy from the Lego movie, everything is awesome, that guy. I'm not saying be like that. But what John is advocating here is guarding against the kind of hatred that can take you over and consume you and lead you to a very dark place, as it says in verse 11. Interestingly, Mr. Cruz, in his commentary, notes that the word for hatred used in this text is the present tense. So it kind of implies that it's ongoing. It's not just a flare-up. It's something that can kind of take hold of you and sink your teeth in. The Bible has some pretty clear warnings for us if we're going to entertain this kind of emotion. Just to pick out a couple, Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, this is Jesus talking, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who hates his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Or Matthew 6.15, talking about forgiveness. If you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. These are just two examples. And John likens this kind of hatred to stumbling around like a blind man in the dark. Because you're not thinking of these warnings when you're consumed by hatred, are you? You're blind to them. Hatred can kind of rob you of your self-awareness, can't it? You're not thinking of the detrimental effect your feelings might have on your spiritual well-being or your emotional state, or the people around you, you're just focused on the object of your hatred. It can kind of lead you into a sort of confirmation bias, can't it? You fit circumstances into your way of thinking in a way that reinforces your hatred, and you just get more and more tunnel vision. And John says, don't be blind to it, because it affects your circumstances, and it affects your standing before God. And just as a, another quick aside... I am well aware that there may be people listening to this who have had some awful things happen to them and awful things might have been done to them whereby these people might be thinking I am entirely justified in my hatred for that person. I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm not, trying to say you need, I'm not saying you need to get over it or you need to forget about it or anything like that. 
God is just. God will deliver vengeance at the appropriate time where it's required, the Bible tells us. But as hard as that may seem, we are called to leave that to him. Now, Christ-like love is a battle, don't get me wrong, which we won't always win, but we have to strive towards it. And we have to guard against being consumed by hatred. So just as we finish off then, where have we been? Number one, knowledge of the gospel leads to obedience. Number two, we obey because the gospel of Christ causes us to obey and changes us. And three, if we hate it, shows our blindness to that gospel. So we've kind of come full circle, I guess. Think back to what I said at the start. Hate won't win. And that's because even when we do hate, the gospel comes in again to bookend what we've been talking about. And just as someone, some of you might have had awful things done to you out of hatred, equally some of you might have done or said some awful things out of hatred that you're ashamed of and you can't forgive yourself for. I know I have. But Jesus says even if we've done this, we can still know his love and forgiveness. I'm going to quote verses 1 and 2, which immediately precede this passage which Paul spoke to us about last week. We can't really take this passage and ignore the, the two verses that come at the beginning. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Hatred can't be diminished. It cannot be entertained in our lives. But if it is or it has been, if we lay it down and we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, he will forgive us. We can take all that hatred and we can put it on him as he took the punishment for it on the cross. just want to finish by reading two verses from Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, where he's, he's writing down and prophesying and he foresees this wonderful day when hatred will end. This is 2 verse 4. He will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's what the end of hatred looks like. The metaphor that we get is that one day weapons are going to be used as gardening tools because they're going to be useless as weapons anymore because hatred will become obsolete. Disputes between people will be settled. But we can rest assured that this came at a very, very dear cost. It cost the Son of God his life. Death couldn't hold him. And because of this, neither do we have to let hatred keep hold of us. And we can lay it down because he loves us.